Welcome to the Public Morality. The presidency of Donald J. Trump, whenever it comes to its conclusion, will not be long forgotten. For good or bad, it may be long remembered by historians as a seminal presidential line of demarcation pre and post Trump. My guest, David Frum, is already thinking about America in the post-Trauma era whenever that concurs. He joins me to discuss his latest book, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Frum is a senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. He is noted for inspiring the phrase, the axis of evil. David Frum, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for your hospitality. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to begin this discussion by asking your thoughts um, on the protests in the wake of uh, the death of George Floyd, uh, President Trump's actions, and, and, and do those things in some way relate to your uh, recent book, Trumpocracy? Uh, well, the, um, I, I am a resident of the District of Columbia. I live about two and a half miles from uh, the White House, about four miles from Capitol Hill. And I have been going into the center of the city just about every day, uh, different times of the day, sometimes in the day, sometimes in the evening, just to see what, what's going on. And, and so I have that limited perspective. Obviously, no one person can see everything. And I also try to stay off cable TV because I think you get then an edited view of reality, often that's just there to make you upset. Um, uh, it does it, look. It's a, it's a terrible situation. Um, there has been um, uh, a killing. Uh, there has been this explosion of public emotion, uh, and there has been real violence. Um, and out in, in in New York and Los Angeles, there has been criminality, and even here in D.C., where things have been much calmer, uh, we've had you know lo- some looting and some vandalism, and windows have been broken, and uh, police uh, police have been hurt, and some of the protesters have been hurt. Um, all of that said. As we're now talking about a week after the um, events have started, with every passing day, the crowds get bigger and they get calmer. Uh, and, it's, and with every passing day, the crowds look more like everyday people. Um, you see a lot more uh, families. Um, you see a lot more people of wide ranges of ages. Um, you see people of um, all different kinds of backgrounds. Uh, you know, from uh, people who look, you know, pretty affluent, well-to-do, people who look not so affluent, not so well-to-do. And it just it just looks more like what you'd see in downtown D.C. And the police have also, while the police look kind of unstable and unready, um, that the National Guard troops that are here have become more and more responsible. And I think and the, the national military, the true professional military, has sent a signal to the president, we do not want to be your goons. Um, leave us, uh, that this is not our mission. Uh, we do not do crowd control, um, and we don't do inside American cities. We certainly don't do it. And when the military goes into an American state for a hurricane or some other natural disaster, it typically goes at the invitation and at the request of the governor. I'll say one more thing about this. I, I served in the George W. Bush administration and was in it during 9-11. And I remember in the weeks after 9-11, the streets of D.C. were full of military personnel. And... What I remember then was just how, uh, if there are a couple of soldiers in a, a vehicle in front of a block of shops, the shop people would come out with water, coffee, cookies, brownies. Uh, everyone was happy to see them, and they made them feel how happy they were to see them. And I think soldiers care about that, and I think they can sense when people are not so happy to see them. And they're Americans. They're, they're not an occupying army. They know what the city thinks. Right. Uh, you know, 
when I was reading Trumpocracy, I, I, I felt uh, like the first paragraph, we could spend our entire time together talking exclusively about the first paragraph. And uh, one of the things you raise is something that, that I've been writing a lot about, so it's near to me. Um, you, you, you raise the issue of norm erosion. Uh, talk about what you see as the norm erosion and its role in, in, yeah. in a democratic republic form of government, which we have. Yeah. Well, um, I've, I've, taken, I've, I've written two books about the Trump experience. One that I published in uh, 2018 called Trumpocracy, which was about what I was predicting. And one which I just published just now called Trumpocalypse, which is looking backwards on the Trump administration. And Trumpocracy tried to give a warning of what I feared would be coming, and Trumpocalypse tries to give an analysis of what I think has happened and how to correct it. Let me give you an example of Norm Erosion that's, I think, very pertinent to what right now, really very pertinent to what the president is doing in the District of Columbia and other states. Um, historically, there has we you know the, the system is set up. We have the president, we have the Congress. Uh, and they may be of the same party, but there's always supposed to be some tension between them. These are the fat, famous checks and balances. Um, Congress has interests just as Congress. And one of its interests is if they ask questions, they expect answers. And, uh, and they have the legal power to demand answers. That's called a subpoena. President Trump has said from the beginning, but more and more over the past year, if the subpoenas come from the House of Representatives controlled by Democrats, I ignore them. I will only answer questions uh, from uh, the, the House of Congress that is controlled by my party, the Senate, controlled by Republicans. I will not answer questions in the House. And it turns out when a president absolutely refuses to answer questions in the House, it's pretty hard to force him to do it. Um, and this case, there's now a group of cases that are on their way to the Supreme Court. They won't be heard and they won't be decided until July of this year, 2020 almost at the end of the first term of the administration. And my prediction is the court is going to find a way to avoid answering the important questions in those cases. Until it'll send it, it'll come, it'll lay down some rules, it'll send it back to the lower courts to be re-argued. And so President Trump will go through his whole first term without having to answer questions from Congress. Right there, David. So that's a, that's a norm that is suddenly gone. What are those important questions that you think the Supreme Court would, would be sidestepping, if you don't mind? Okay, so... Um, Three committees of Congress have asked to see President Trump's business records and his tax records. Um, and uh, they, they haven't asked him. They've asked his accountants and they've asked his bankers. So the subpoena goes to the accounting firm and to the banking firm says, hand over these records. Uh, and we want to see them to check that the president is complying with bank laws. We want to see to, to uh, look at them to check that the president is complying with money laundering laws. Now, this, over American history, the courts have been very clear. Congress can ask about almost anything, not quite anything. Congress, one case where, back in the 1880s where Congress tried to subpoena a private citizen's private diary. And, and that was said, okay, no, you can't have that. But short of that, you can have anything. And you can certainly have anything from the government. Uh, and the two, there are two important cases, one from the 1950s, one from the 1970s, that says if Congress could legislate on something, even if it has no plans, but if it could, then it can subpoena on what it's legislating. So the Trump people have said, have sent to the court, no, 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 we, all this history that goes back to the 1880s, throw it out the window. We have a whole new plan for you, a whole new set of schemes to regulate subpoenas that we'd like you to adopt. So I think what's going to happen in July when the court rules 
it'll say, okay, we, we're the Trump case, the Trump position is obviously nuts. That's ridiculous. We're not going to make up a whole new scheme. But we need to refine a little bit the scheme we inherited from the 1950s and 1970s. So here's the slight refinement we propose, and now we're sending it back to a lower court, do the whole thing over again under our under our new rules. And that buys Trump time. It gets him through the election without anybody seeing his business records and his accounting records. I'm not saying, I obviously I don't have foreknowledge, but this is my guess about what's coming. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump over to uh, chapter five, uh, real versus unreal Americans. That that, mm-hmm. that seemed to be very uh, prescient, uh, especially in the times that we're living. There is you, you describe a, a systematic effort to portray an America where it it perennially stands at five minutes to midnight. I love that line. Talk about that phenomenon, if you will. What is that? Is that like a fear-induced politics? What, what what's that five minutes to midnight when you talk when you talk about that? Yeah. Well, look. I'll, I'll, um, there's this effort um, to, um, as as everyone who pays attention to the way American voting works knows, not all Americans' votes count the same. First, there are many Americans who are find it difficult to vote at all. Second, there are many Americans who, when they do vote, find they have to wait in line much longer than other Americans do um, because voting booths or units are not put equally, randomly. And then, of course, the whole system weights some votes more than others. And in some cases, of course, um, and, and this has enormous effect even more maybe on local than on national politics. Right now, in the last election in 2018, Republicans won about 45 percent of the vote. uh, for the seats in the Wisconsin state legislature. But of the 99 seats in the Wisconsin state legislature, they have 64, two-thirds of the seats with 45% of the vote. Um, And uh, and this is just something that we've gotten used to, but it's clearly been getting worse since 2010. Um, And so I – and now this state of affairs seems pretty shocking. So if you're doing it, you have to justify it. And the people who do it justify it by suggesting that some people's votes are more deserving. And I talk in this chapter, I quote the speech that Sarah Palin gave in 2008 at the Republican convention, where she said, we raise good people in our small towns. And she had a whole list of virtues of people in small towns. And you know what? People in small towns are terrific. Uh, I don't want to take, I don't want to take a, dim their luster even slightly. They are just as wonderful as she said. But you know who are also wonderful? People who live in big cities. But... (laughs) I invite the reader to imagine, supposing somebody stood up at a Democratic convention and said, we raise good people on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and in West Hollywood. <laughs> I just, what? Like, the people, you know, who'd be, the people in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and West Hollywood would be shocked. No, no one ever says nice things about us. <laughs> All the compliments go to the small town people. God bless the small town people. But, but and it, we have this false image of our country. I, the, the statistic I use to drive this point home, if you add up everybody who works in the coal industry, not just the miners, bookkeepers, marketing people, lawyers, everybody, the entire coal industry, that number adds up to the to less than the number of people who have a license to teach yoga in the United States. Wow. Okay. That's so we just and I Hawkins, we need we don't and one of the things we need we need to see the country the way it is. And what Americans actually do, you know, so when you see a campaign ad, uh, you know, a typical you know, standard politician, when you add, look at what the occupations of what the people do, there'll be one person from healthcare. 
But leave out, okay, so leaving that one person from healthcare aside, everybody else is working in sectors of the economy that employ virtually nobody. You know, you'll see a farmer. God bless the farmers. There aren't very many. You'll see somebody from mining. God bless the miners. There aren't very very many. You'll see somebody in a factory. And you know what? There aren't even very many of those anymore. Um, you'll, you'll never see like two women with yoga mats coming out of the yoga studio. Uh, you know, you, you'll never see um, a college professor, right? But, uh, you know, probably there are probably more people teaching in institutions of higher learning than work in manufacturing by now. I, I don't. I shouldn't say. I should not say that so confidently. I don't know that. But but there 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 are probably a, a, at least a, a million people teaching working in institutions of higher learning. Of, you know, four year and second and two year together. It's a huge thing. But we, we don't process this as we don't see our country the way it is, and so we don't make rules for our country the way it is. And this is what has enabled. And this is the theme of Crumpocalypse. This is what has enabled a gathering attack on democratic values and norms because um, we're, our institutions are so out of alignment with our country. But uh, playing the contrarian momentarily, some of that that you, that you speak of, though, we'd have to be fair and say that didn't begin with the emergence of the Trump administration, did it? No, no, no. Um, uh, but so I, I try in both Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse to put all of this in both historic perspective and global perspective, because... Um, Many of the things that are happening here are happening in other countries, and they didn't start yesterday. But I, I do tell, I, I think there is a story where since the emergence from the Great Recession, that I, th I think all of these problems have become much more intense. And the United States in particular, they've become more intense since um, the election of 2010 and the census of 2010. The elections of 2010 gave Republicans control over state government in a way that no party has had since the Republicans had it in the 1920s. And it gave them that control at the same time as there was a redistricting to do in the years 2010, 2011. So Republicans used their huge wins in the election of 2010 to re redraw maps that dominated, that, that, um, were, that dominated the politics of the 2010s. And they did this at the same time as the Supreme Court in 2013 dismantled much of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so that gave politicians more freedom than they'd had since the civil rights era um, to revise voting systems on behalf of the party that had power. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with one of the nation's leading public intellectuals, David Frum. And we're discussing his recent book, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Now, now David, if I counted correctly, this is your 10th book. As yes. You, as you mentioned earlier, your second about, the, the, about President Trump. Um, overall, what motivated you to spend so much time on this presidency in, in, in what is essentially real time? Yeah. Uh, it's been a pretty tough and unpleasant experience, I have to say. I, I don't like spending mental time in the company of this person. I, I just opened a section of the of the book where I describe a little bit of Trump. I don't spend much time on Trump's personality because I'm interested in his power, but, but I describe him, I say um, how he works, that all his rage and resentment spilled from his mouth in hateful speech or was tapped by his fingers into his crazy Twitter feed. But as if under a curse, he could use words only to demean, disparage, defame, and deceive. Pain is all he has. So pain is all he could give. And like, who wants to spend time with this person? But um, I started, I, I 
you know, I, I come from the Republican world. I serve in the George W. Bush administration. I could see things. I could see my party heading in some very radical directions, and it worried me. Beginning, I started writing about this in about 2005, 2006, and then I could see democratic institutions under uh, crumbling all over the world. Beginning about 2010, starting in Central Europe and Hungary and Poland. We're also seeing it happen in Mexico and uh, Brazil uh, and in Brazil. Um, we're seeing, you know, the best traditions of Indian secularism. We're seeing uh, a kind of something you've never seen before. I mean, kind of Hindu chauvinism. Hinduism is like the, the world's least um, chauvinist religion. Um, but it's backforming itself. It's remodeling itself into be um, to be something exclusive and punitive and ultra-nationalistic and militaristic. Um, and so all of this is happening, and this is our world, and I became very engaged in it. And pe people say, how can you bear to think about it? Don't you get sick of it? And the analogy I use is, you know, if you've raised children, you know what it's like when your child has a fever. Um, it gets very wearisome to sit by that bed. Uh, but it's your child, so you do it. And it's your country, so you do it. Um, one of the things that I was reading, uh, uh, Trump, Trump Popocalypse, Given I'm sorry, it is a tongue twister. I'm, I know. It's a, you know, I, I just think that police, when they pull you over, instead of giving you a breathalyzer, should hold up a copy of the book and say, what's the title here, please, sir? <laughs> and and I, I, David, in, 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 in the spirit of complete fairness, I just want you to know, uh, in my preparation to interview you, I practiced it, oh, about 100 times, and I still, and I still botched it up. So it's your fault. Uh, <laughs> but given the uniqueness of this administration, did you ever concern yourself, given the time of book production, set, a, set aside the, the actual writing, that you could be creating work that by the time it, became, it got to the market, it was obsolete? I, I did worry about that, of course. Any author would. Um, and the way I dealt with that was by trying to lift my eyes out of the immediate. This is not really a reporter's book. This is not – this happened. I mean, you could spend – I mean, there are so many scandals in the Trump era where I, I keep a, I have files and I will sometimes surprise people by reminding them of something that was an uh, that happened in 2017 that at the time would have been it, it would have blown the wheels out of any previous administration. And you've already forgotten it because that was the second worst scandal that week, never mind <laughs> that year. So it's hard to keep track of. But I think there are big themes here um, that uh, that you can that hold true. Um, half of Trumpocalypse is, is about uh, the future. And I think there are enduring lessons here that um, should guide us. I want to say something about the title that is such a tongue, tongue twister. You're a person from a religious um, tradition and you teach religion, so you will know this, but not everybody does. We use the word apocalypse to mean something terrible, like zombie apocalypse. But of course, an apocalypse is, is a revelation. Now, in the Christian apocalypse, Apocalypse, the thing that is being revealed is the end of the world, but it's also a prelude right. to a new world. And so Trumpocalypse is not the story of disasters, it's the story of, of possibilities. And I end this book, and this is why I, why I hope it will have enduring value, um, by quoting Abraham Lincoln, and one of his, one of my favorite of his speeches, but one of the less famous. On the night of his re-election in 1864, a crowd gathers at the White House to congratulate him and serenade him. Mm -hmm. And look, I, I, I've spent my life with politicians. When they win re-election, they're in pretty self-congratulatory mood most of the time. <laughs> Yay, me. <laughs> I'm so great. Um, not, Lincoln was never like that. Um, and so he greeted this crowd and he gave 
as Lincoln could only do, um, a speech that was so must have left them just baffled by what he was saying. And but one of the things, and this is the part, so it's, it's November of 1864. He's won re-election. He was afraid he would lose. He knew if he lose, he would lose the country. Um, but he's won re-election. There have been military victories, and now he can just—it's a matter of time before he wins the greatest history, victory in American history. And he did it on the basis of this great political victory. So instead of, but instead of triumph, he says this, and this is the end of the book. And I think it's a guide for all of us. He said, "What has ha- occurred in this case must ever recur in similar cases. Human nature will not change. In any future great national trial, compared with the men of this." We shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and as good. Let us therefore study the incidents of this as philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. And I think that's how we should, we've been through um, the most serious attack, explicit attack on democratic institutions by a president ever. There's never been any, certainly since the Civil War. Um, and it looks like we are going to come out the other side of it with not undamaged, not unscathed, but, you know, obviously millions of people are out of work, millions of people are sick, 100,000 are dead, all, a lot of it preventable. So we've had losses. People have suffered, people have been demeaned, people have insulted. But it looks like we can get out the other end. How do we make sure we're better on the other side of it? Well, I want to pose a question that you raised to the readers, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose, I thought this is a good question for David Fromm. Uh, what does America look like if President Trump is reelected twice by winning the Electoral College, but also twice losing the popular vote? That is a heavy question. And it's an even heavier question when you consider that will mean, if, if, if President Trump does win the way you say, that Republicans will have won the presidency four times in the 21st century, losing the popular vote three of those four times. So what it will mean is that we have a party that has been the dominant party of the presidency through the, as much of the 21st century as we've had, um, you know, uh, from 2000, 2024, they've had it for all but eight years. Um, and for all but four of those years, they had it with a minority of the popular vote. Um, what you're getting is in, in the Republican world, and this is the thing I fight within my own party, is people get used to that. And they become increasingly explicit that it doesn't matter. And you hear people saying, well, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. (laughs) And you think, well, you stop the American in the street and say, are we a democracy or not? And he or she would say, well, I thought so. And if we're not, maybe we should be. You know, one of the things you also wrote about that that really jumped out at me uh, why this phenomenon could come to fruition at some point, if not now, it could come down the road. You, you talked about um, Norman Ornstein, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and, and he projects 70% of the population will live in 15 states by 2040. And moreover, yeah. I mean, and, and that made me think about Madison's concerns in Federalist 10 when he talked about the, the tyranny of the majority. And so I'm wondering what Ornstein projects are we now talking about nationalizing a tyranny of the minority? That's um, we. The, the American system of government has always been protect, set up to protect minorities. That's what the Senate is for, and, and there are other kinds of ways too. But we're now 
first, the distribution of population is becoming so extreme. And second, we've added on top of Madison's ideas a whole lot of other ideas to super protect minorities. So um, as you say, the, the Senate is already rep unrepresentative enough. Now imagine when we say, okay, it's just a rule that to pass anything except a budget or to pass a judge, you need 60, not 50 senators. So that that makes the um, the senators from those forty those forty senators who can represent I, I, I think I give in the book I now forget now just how what a small percentage of the population can be represented by forty senators and they get veto power over everything. Um, so one of the argue, one of the recommendations in the book is that the new Senate, if the Democrats control it, should on day one just get rid of the filibuster uh, for legislation. It's already been got rid of for judges. Um, and it's already been changed a number of times over American history. Um, and there's no it's, there's no basis for it in the Constitution. There's no basis for it in law. It's just a rule of the Senate. Um, and the Senate can change its rules. And there'll be a lot of yelling. And some and there, there are some Democrats who won't agree. But uh, because they'll say, well, w when we lose, we'll use the, the filibuster. To which I would say, okay, if you keep the filibuster, it's true that you will be able to prevent the Republicans from governing some of the time. But if you keep the filibuster, you are preventing yourselves from governing any of the time. And and you should trade being able, even if this, the Senate is tilted in the other guy's favor, it's better to have a deal where he gets the Senate more often than you, but at least you get it sometimes, than a system where you never have it, you can never use it. I think you should sort of answer this, but I, I was fascinated as I again as I was reading Trunkpocalypse. See how easily it rolled off my tongue that time. He's uh, getting good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Practice <laughs> like piano. <laughs> uh, but you know, one of the things I was thinking about because we know politics is cyclical. What is the deterrent? Let's say the Democrats take the Senate and they have the House. What is the deterrent? Uh, from them developing, let's say, talk about gerrymandering, they don't gerrymander, have gerrymandering 2.0. Yeah. Um, I think that's, um, that I talk ab about gerrymandering. One of the things I recommend in the book uh, to um, Democrats, and I say, I don't speak as a Democrat, I speak as somebody who's interested in a more fair system of competition. And I think in the long term, it's better for my party to have a more fair system of competition because. So long as Republicans think, well, we can compete by stopping people from voting, it's like basically it's like an athlete using performance enhancing drugs. You know, you get a short term advantage, but you're never really as good as you think you are. Um, and so whereas if we have a rule that you can't use steroids, um, then people really have to get fit uh, and and they really have to train and practice. And, and um, so. A world in which there's less gerrymandering is a world in which Republicans take more seriously appealing to more different kinds of people. Not everybody, by the way. Uh, you know, you live you get, anybody's getting 100% of the vote, that that is a pretty bad system, too. St Stalin got 100%, didn't he? Or you died right. if you didn't vote for him. <laughs> right. You're, you're, you know, you're aiming for about 51 and a half, you know, 51 plus a little margin of safety. That's <laughs> that's what you want. You don't want – because, look, if, if once you're getting – racking up 60, 62 – then your party's becoming incoherent and you can't do anything either. And and it works better when you, instead of being blurry, you take, you know, you take turns and you, you know, and the ship of state moves by tacking sometimes this way and tacking sometimes that way. Um, uh, but the, the, we, so th this isn't a, you know, making, making a real commitment to democracy like this. It's, it's, it's good for Republicans. It, um, and it, 
the way you deter the Democrats is by um, creating habits and expectations in the public. I, one of my suggestions to the Democrats is that um, if they do well in the elections of 2020, and especially at the state level, that they then, in states like your state of North Carolina, which are super competitive states, uh, that the Democratic House say, look, um, this is a super competitive state where we have, for the moment, a slight advantage. There are a number of super competitive, of, of competitive states, Arizona, uh, Georgia, where you have an advantage. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do two maps of redistricting North Carolina. We're going to do a fair map and an unfair map. Now, if you will do a fair map in Georgia, we'll do a fair map here in North Carolina. If you want to do an unfair map in Georgia, well, we can do the same to you in North Carolina and, and actually publish the two maps. Now, it's crazy that politicians draw their own maps. No other democracy in the world allows this. And oh, ideally, I'd like to get rid of it. But we need to re restore some deterrence. And that's what happened before 2010. It was the huge Republican win of 2010 that then empowered much more extreme gerrymandering than you saw in the 90s or 80s or 70s. You know, one of the things that, that um, we began this conversation earlier on talking about norm erosion. And yeah. when I think, I, I think about a lot of the norms in, in our history, I mean, there was a time when openly campaigning for president was looked down upon. Um, yeah. The primaries were seen as not a pathway to the presidency until John F. Kennedy decided to do it in 1960. And, right. and, one, and no one, I mean, no one uh, announced the day after the midterms they were running for the presidency as they do now. I mean, I'll, so, yeah. so my question to you is, how do we distinguish between the organic transformation of some norms, but as you suggested, text perhaps codifying others. How do we draw that balance? Yeah, no, that's a very profound question, and I don't know that I have a great answer for you. Um, I, I think this is this is where the politics come, comes in. I mean, look, and it's true that some norms, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe the president should have more leeway to defy subpoenas if he wants to, and maybe let him try. Um, but I, I think we there's I think we can make reason cases that some norms are worth defending. But I'll tell you, that the whole point to a norm is no one thinks about it. People just take it for granted. So what, what happens is once a norm comes under attack, you really have two choices. You can either accept that it's going to fade because we're not, well, why, why do we do this? Um, you know, uh, senators always call each other my friend. Okay, that, and one day one won't. And then everyone will wonder, why did they ever do it? And maybe we won't miss it. But sometimes when you, it, it, there are norms and you lose them, and if they're precious, then you may need to turn them into formal law. And an example of this that we've seen very much in the Trump years is there's so many limits on presidential money making where the restraint has always been, that would be shameful. The president wouldn't do it. It would be shameful. And there have been restraints not just on the president's money making, but on his family. And there, look, there have always been, every president has had a bad brother. Um, you know, there, there, there's always a Billy Carter. Um, and, uh, there's always a, a, a Roger Clinton. There's always one of those. Um, and usually what has historically happened is that person tries little shifty schemes and hopes to get away with it by keeping the schemes little. And then the schemes get noticed and then the president and his team go squash the sibling in some way. And, you know, I think in Roger, they often invite them to live in the White House so they can keep it closer. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened to Roger Clinton. So that's all. That's OK. But the but what happens if a president isn't embarrassed? What if he says, what 
what are the things where I actually am in danger of criminal prosecution if I do them? I will do everything where I'm not in danger of criminal prosecution. And that's when Trump's attitude and successful criminal prosecution. And, and then he's just done. He's operated a business. He's directed money from the government to his pockets. He's directed money from his party to his pockets. He's directed unknown amounts of money from his 2017 inaugural fund. He raised $100 million for his inauguration in 2017, more than has ever been raised before for an inauguration. And that's the least transparent pile of money in government, no one, that is, because it's, it's, a, it's theoretically a private body. No one knows how that money was spent. And, but when people tally what we know was spent with what we know was raised, they, there's a huge amount left over. Where did that money go? Nobody knows. Um, and, his, and, and, and his family has behaved in ways that no presidential family has ever dared behave before. So how do we restore that norm? Well, partly if Trump loses and he loses because he seemed to be corrupt, people will be more careful. But some of these things we're going to need to turn into law and just say, you know what, this, this is no longer a norm. It's now a rule. Uh, back, in, back in 2012, uh, we talked about Norman Ornstein earlier, and he, along with Thomas Mann, wrote, um, it's even worse mm -hmm. than it looks, how the American constitution system collided uh, with the new politics of extremism. I see Trunk Apocalypse. I'm getting better all the time. I see Trunk Apocalypse as a as a logical extension of their work. And and what jumped out at me when, when you know when I read their work, and I had a similar sensation when I read your book. It's easy to see in this case the Republican Party as the primary malefactors, but in a two party system, if one party has gone off the rails, I guess my question to you isn't mediocrity the best we could hope for from the other party? Well, that's a profound question too. Um, uh, that's a very, uh, and I'm going to need a second to think about it. I, I had this experience. I, I, I mentioned to you that I've been walking around the city um, uh, through these days of disturbance. And I, one of the places I went was I went to the Lincoln Memorial because I wanted to see, President Trump said uh, there's been vandalism at the Lincoln Memorial and I wanted to go take a look. I, I don't want to shock you. He, he wasn't telling the truth um, that that there that if you know the Lincoln Memorial you know it's it's set on like layers and layers of steps yeah. and then there the, the the marble steps of the mar monument itself and then the the stone steps of the platform leading up to the monument and then there are walkways leading uh, because it's the ground's kind of uneven there so there are walkways and paths and then there's some like um uh uh, displays and things like that. So on some of those things that are on the way to the monument, not the monument itself, people had spray painted. And you know what? No one should ever spray paint on any federal property. But paint comes off. And uh, paint also comes off when it's not literally on the monument, but on the thing. So so I was there. But, so I, I, but I remember standing there looking at this incredible, most, so moving, this, this place, and so much American history there. Um, and and you have this thought, God, why don't why do you ever send us one of these again? <laughs> and and I, I sort of think, and what would God say if you asked him that question? I think he'd say, Well, I did it once. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own here. Solve, you know. Do I have to do everything? <laughs> and by the way, you know, the problems I'm sending you now are not so severe that you shouldn't be able to handle them on on your own with normal politicians. Maybe the answer is to your question about mediocrity is that maybe the leadership for the next phase of American life is going to show up much more at the state level 
than at the federal level. Um, and the state level is the area, is the level in which maybe democratic norms are in, are in greater danger even than at the federal level. And so that's where you have to look for, you know, your inspirational leaders. Finally, uh, I wanted, just wanted to ask you as we wrap up, uh, when, when you, writing Trumpocalypse, oh God, I'm a, I'm a pro now, I'm ready for my dissertation. Um, writing Trumpocalypse, were, were you, do you concern yourself that the Republican Party, who incidentally came after the Whigs, are now on the brink of following the Whigs? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think probably not, because I think the party structure is now, this is a very mature country, and the party structure is pretty stable. And it's usually easier to change a party than to start a new party. So the Democrats were on the wrong side of the Civil War. They survived that. The Republicans were on the wrong side of the Great Depression. They survived that. Um, what, and what has tended to happen in American history is you've had third party challenges that test new ideas um, the way uh, the, the populist parties of the 1890s did. Um, and when those ideas begin to go somewhere, as they do it, as the populist ideas did at the state level, then uh, one of the big existing parties just copies them. And so the, in 1896, the Democrats saw the populists as a challenge to them. And so they nominated William Jennings Bryan and just basically swiped the populist ideas and the populists then, then vanished. Um, and, uh, you know, you could say if you were uncharitable that George Wallace did the same thing in 1968. And Richard Nixon in 1972 saw that Wallace had found something important um, and and tried to win Wallace voters to the Republican Party and was to some degree successful. Um, and so my, my guess is, I mean, I think we are, I'll put this in a way that's less political and maybe more hopeful. I think what we have seen in the Trump years are a series of movements of classic American movements of moral reform, uh, like the suffrage movements, like temperance, like abolition. And Me Too was one. Um, I think uh, Black Lives Matter has been another where they're not exactly political. I mean, there are no Me Too candidates for office. There are no Black Lives Matter candidates for office, or hardly any. Um, they, they operate outside the political system. They identify new themes. And then the parties sort of look at this, and, and it sets the motion for these one of the, I think we're heading toward one of these ages of, of reform. That America, the last one was in the uh, just after Watergate between 1974 and 78, where we changed institutions in a pretty dramatic way, and I, I think that's that may be coming, and this may be maybe to my answer to my thought at the Lincoln Memorial, why don't you send us any more of these? Maybe the answer is that the real importance, the real energy is coming after Trump, to um, and that his importance in American history was to uncork the possibility of this new era um, of reform. Sort of like James Buchanan on Cork Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, or like, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, like the, 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 the corrupt presidents after the Civil War, the corrupt political system after the Civil War set in motion the demands for progressive, you know, people say, why do I have to pay a bribe to get a license to open a restaurant? I don't want to do that anymore. The book, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, and our guest for this time has been... Uh, senior editor from The Atlantic, David Fromm, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me and spending this time on The Public Morality. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. 
The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, and in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.